0: another episode of the Power of Investing in People podcast. I am your host, Shay Sparks. I am known to be a fearless communicator and energetic catalyst. And boy, has it taken a lot of work to become a fearless communicator and an energetic catalyst for that matter. So this is season nine, episode 250. Oh my god, I can't believe it. And it's been four and a half years. It's been an amazing, amazing ride. And if you're tuning in for the first time, I will hope you'll go back and listen to some old episodes. But if anything, I hope you go back and at least listen to episode one of season nine just last week, because that was the beginning of my story. And uh, I'm going to finish up the rest of it in this episode. And yet there were so many things that I forgot to mention uh, after reviewing it. I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot that key component and that key component. So I do want to go back and kind of talk about that a little bit more and then, and then finish up the story. But our stories are never finished Uh, as long as we're living, we're continuing to grow. And that is definitely something that I've learned is, is it's not what that happens to us. It's what happens for us and everything that you have been through. And there's a reason, and it's helping you grow. It's helping you heal. It's helping you stretch. It's helping you thrive. And that is where I am now is thriving. So there is hope to go from surviving to thriving to take that trauma that you've been through and transform it into a treasure. And there is light where there was once darkness. The key is to share it, to share your story. And the more times you share it, the more healing you you do, not just for yourself, but it gives permission for other people to heal, for other people to share. When we share those lessons learned, from the obstacles that we've overcome, we ignite a tiny spark of hope, love, connection, and community in others. And when we enlight that spark, the whole world lights up. And that to me is the power of investing in people. Because what ends up happening is you've invested in yourself first. And then it naturally overflows onto you, yourself, your family, your business your community. So let me kind of recap. I talked about last time, um, the abuse, the addiction, um, and, uh, being a bully and being bullied is what I'm going to talk about this time. I didn't really go too much into that. I did go through the depression part of my story and there's some things that I missed. I missed. So let me just kind of Go back to childhood and tell you that, you know, even though my family unit, oh, this is going to bring tears to my eyes, even though my family unit was not loving or caring or nurturing, it's that that they didn't have the tools, they didn't have the skills, and they didn't understand. Um, They were experiencing their own fear. They were experiencing their own hurt and hurt people hurt people because they're hurting and empowered people empower people. And because they've been empowered and that's where I'm at today. So know that, um, what I'm going to say about my family is, is healed. I mean, no ill will to any of them. And we've had the many conversations about it over the years but it's not about bad mouthing them or saying anything bad about them because we were, we didn't know. And that's another thing that I had learned through this is that we only know what we know. And there's a whole lot of things out there that we don't know. And until you ask yourself, what is it that you don't know that you need to know in order to move forward? It's, you, you have no idea. It's literally not even something that is taught to think about. It's not even talked about in most circles. What is it that you don't know? It's mostly focusing on what you do know. So with that said, let me take you back to, um, I was probably about kindergarten age, so five five years old or so. And um, I think it was about that age. So my oldest brother was probably about 12 so he was getting, he so he was in the like seventh, sixth grade and, um, him and my other brother were looking through, um, pornography. They were looking through the Playboy and Penthouse magazines and they had, you know, ripped out the center folds and, and all the pretty women and everything. And they taped them up all, all over their room and like, um, posters. So like most teenagers, they have cars or, or back then they had car posters or they had, you know, the swimsuit models or, you know, whatever heartthrob they were had a crush on at that point a celebrity. And, um, my family allowed, my parents allowed because they just thought, Oh, boys will be boys. Um, so I was, you know, exposed to this type of, I don't even know what to call it—trauma uh, in my brain—and I didn't realize it was trauma. But now, uh, all of the things that I've researched and learned about, and and talked about, and and healed from is that when your brain is exposed to something that is out of the ordinary for that time frame of your life, it becomes trauma. I mean, we don't get to decide if it's trauma. But it's trauma. And so probably maybe a couple years later, probably in the second grade or so, Um, I had a, a friend of my brother's had spent the night and he tried to um, touch me. And then a few years later, I had another friend of my brother's tried to take advantage of me. And he tried to uh, rape me, attempted to rape me. And when I, you know, I kept saying no. And when he was able to, he left and I was able to get away. I knew that he would come back and he did. Um, But I hid, so he couldn't find me. And um, after he left, I went and told my mom and, and I don't necessarily use those words attempted to rape because I was so young. I didn't understand. I just said, you know, he, he touched me and he kissed me and my mom took it wrong. Bless her heart. She didn't understand the magnitude of this. She was like, Oh my gosh, you got your first kiss. And started to like, kind of laugh about it. And I didn't get it. I didn't understand because I wasn't feeling like, oh my God, this was my first kiss. I was feeling like I had been um, taken advantage of. I was scared. I was uh, confused even more now by her reaction. And I didn't understand um, and yet yeah, I didn't have words to articulate any of that um, because in my family, we never talked about feelings. We never talked about, you know, what was really going on. And uh, you know, it was always, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So if it wasn't uh, nice about someone else, then keep it to yourself kind of a thing. We don't want to hear it. Um, you know, if you used to cry, it was uh, stop your crying. I'll give you something to cry about. You know, things like that. Oh, you're hurt. Oh, just walk it off. You know, you're sick. Oh, that's okay. I've been sick my whole life. You know, I've been sick. Never called in uh, to work sick. So buck it up, suck it up, buttercup kind of a thing. So that's the kind of life I had before before the drinking started. And at some point, um, I think it was during those drinking years of 11, 12, 13, 14, I was on the bus and I started to be, uh, sit with the other kids and, you know, kind of pick on them. One kid uh, breaks my heart to think about now because I'm so sorry that I did this to him. I would just sit in his seat and just my presence of him, of me being in his, is sitting in the same seat with him. He, He was terrified of me. And I don't recall if I ever actually, um, like hurt him in any way, but I may have. And if he's listening or please know, I am truly, truly sorry. And I know that's not an excuse, but I was going through so much and I didn't know that was my outlet. I didn't know how to I didn't know how to process what I was going through, and the only thing I knew how to do was act out. Clearly, that's why I was drinking. So now I was being mean to people. So please know that that is not who I am, and I am so, so sorry for any pain that I maybe caused you, if you're listening or watching this. But just know that those childhood bullies—they're going through something. They've been—they've been hurt. They've been traumatized, maybe. They've been bullied. And a lot of times the bullied becomes the bully. And in my case, that's exactly what happened. And so then when I was with my uh, my ex-boyfriend that I shared with last time that was um, toxic, abusive, toxic manipulation, he bullied me. And yet I bullied him back there was a point where I I got to where I knew kind of a little bit to how to play the manipulation game and knew what to say or do to kind of get revenge, so to speak on um, after something I was upset about because of all the things that he, he had done or said to me. So um, I definitely learned most of my life on how not to be. So the best way you can, can do when you learn how not to be is to think, okay, what is the exact opposite of this and start practicing being that. And that's what I started to do. But uh, I finished up in the last episode of saying that he was in a car accident. So I'll take you back to, um, middle of May, 2009. He We weren't living together and I did typically talk to him every morning and every night. Uh, I saw him every night after work, but he was just most of the time. So he was drunk by then and he was so brutally horrible that, you know, I got to the point that whatever he said to me didn't affect me anymore. I was just like sitting there, taking it in, just waiting, waiting for him to kill me and get it over with. And my suffering and, uh, so I called that morning and he didn't answer. And I thought that's so strange. So I drove by his house and honestly, I was kind of expecting, um, someone else's car in the driveway, kind of hoping maybe then I could be like, oh, thank God someone else can take care of him and not me. And so I, um, drove by and that was not the case. His car wasn't even there. And, um, I'm like, okay, he maybe spent the night with someone. Okay. And throughout the entire day, I'm at work, I'm at the salon. I would call between clients and no answer. Sometimes it would go straight to voicemail. Sometimes it wouldn't. And when I got off work, I went over to his house and I had a key. So I went through his house and, and it looked as if he hadn't been there uh, all day. And so normally there were certain things that he did routinely and that wasn't the case. So I went across the street to the neighbors who I had never met. In fact, I was terrified to go across the street to the neighbors because he told me how much uh, they didn't like me. And they thought I was walking around like I was stuck up because I never, um, you know, took time to go say hi to them or anything like that. And just all the lies that he would say to me. So here I am now worried about him. And I walk across the street and. I knock on the door and I introduce myself and they're like, Oh, of course we know who you are. And they were so loving and sweet and kind. And I was shocked. And I said, honestly, I, I, I don't know where he is and I don't know if you've seen him. And, and they said, we haven't, we haven't seen him all day. And I said, is there anywhere that he hangs out that you know of? And they're like, Oh yeah, actually he hangs out at this bar around the corner. And so I go to the bar around the corner and, um, I talk go in and there's um just one old guy sitting at the bar and the bartender and that's it. There's no one else in there. It's probably a maybe around five o'clock on a Friday afternoon uh, or Thursday afternoon, and so or no Friday afternoon, and so I uh, ask the bartender. I'm like, do you know who this guy is? And he's like, no. And I said, well, this is what he looks like. And he's like, oh, I yes, I know exactly who he is. In fact, he was in here last night. And I said, was he? Do you know what time? Was it before midnight or after? And I don't know why I asked that question. And he's like, oh, it was definitely after midnight. And he was so drunk that I refused him service. And I was like, wow, well, he's missing. And the old guy at the bar piped up and was like, well, there's always cops in the parking lot. He probably got a DUI and he, they're just letting him sleep it off. Uh, in the in the drunk tank at the at the jail and I was like oh thank you that kind of helps so at least I have a lead so I get in the car and I'm driving um, back to my house which is about 30 35 minutes away and I call the police station and they said no we don't have him and never arrested him or anything like that didn't tell me anything else that's all they could tell me okay great and I call his mom and I'm like you know I, have you heard from him she's like no She's like, well, I don't know what you're going to do. You're just going to have to file a missing persons report. You'll, meaning me, will have to file a missing persons report. And I'm thinking, you're his mom. I am nothing. I'm just a girlfriend. Like, why do I have to file that? So I get, I'm praying the whole time I'm driving. God, what do I do? Where is he? How do I find him? Things like that. And I get home and again, get that big phone book, the yellow pages, and I open it up. And the first thing it opens to is hospitals. And there was a new hospital in the area that I lived in. And so I called it immediately and they answered. And um, I asked, you know, is he here? And she said, he is here. He's in ICU. And I was like, oh my God, ICU. Wow. Wow uh, I wonder what happened. And she, I said, can you connect me? And she's like, yes, I'll connect you. And so it would connect me to a nurse's station and a couple of things would happen. Uh, cause this happened several times, either they would answer the phone. And when I'd ask about him, they would hang up or I would, um, they would call, 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 or I would call and ring, ring, ring. And then eventually they would just, uh, pick up and hang it back up. Well, what I know now is that it was during shift change. So they never really like to talk or ask about this during shift change. So I caught calling back and calling back and the same dear woman kept answering the main um, line of the hospital. And finally, I'm like, she's like, honey, he is up here. Just come up here. And you can see him. And I finally caught her name on that time. I think it was like the fifth or sixth time. And her name was Faith. And I'll tell you just by thinking about, wow, her name is Faith. It reminded me of my faith. And in that moment to just pray to God and say, you know, lead me, take care of me, guide me through this, carry me through this. Um, and so I call his mom, I get in the car, I call his mom. And, and I said, he's at the hospital. And he, she said, call his sister. I call his sister. And she's like, okay, um, I'll be right there. She said, I'm on the other line with mom. And I was like, why didn't they tell you? Why didn't she tell you? Anyway. So I get to the hospital. I call my business partner and told her and and she's like, well, don't speed. It's starting to rain. I was like, oh my God, that's right. I should be speeding. That's uh, stupid me. And I sped up and got to the hospital and um, got to ICU. And I said, where is he? And they said, he's in the right across the, from the nurse's station. And I walk in the room and I pull the curtain back and I see him laying there. And he's unconscious. And he has all these tubes sticking out everywhere. And there's, um, you could see blood on his pillow behind his head. And there was just huh, so much. And I sure I gasped. I'm sure I cried. I'm sure I cried out loud and was like, Oh my God, what happened? Uh, something like that. And uh, a nurse who I didn't even see in the room comes rushing over to me and she's like, Shh, you cannot be in here. You can't talk, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what's happened? He's my fiance. Why didn't anybody call me to tell me I'm his emergency contact. And she's like, I can't tell you. He's listed as confidential. And um, I still don't really understand the, the magnitude of what that means other than um, when someone is in a car accident and they don't know the particulars, they don't know if he had hit someone. So they didn't know if I was maybe either someone that was coming to get revenge or who knows. And so, um, and with the laws of HIPAA, they're not allowed to tell me anything until they really know how to prove who I am. And unfortunately I don't think there was a way to actually prove who I am in that moment. And so she led me to the hallway and I just stayed in the hallway and had my hands and, uh, you know, my head in my hands and I was just crying and I I was in shock and I was crying and I was like, Oh my God, now what? Um, and then there was this tiny, tiny bit of, relief that was showing through. And then at the same time, it was guilt. Like, oh, I wanted to be out of this relationship, but I didn't want it to happen like this. I didn't want her to be hurt. So uh, just then his sister showed up and I don't, she told me not to be loud. And all of a sudden, now I'm loud again. And I just yell really loud, his sister's here. And because the nurse had disappeared and out of nowhere, she shows up again. And um, she asked for his phone number. And I rattle it off. His sister didn't know it. Uh, she asked for a social security number. I rattled it off. His sister didn't know it. And there was another thing, his address or something, same thing. I rattled it off and at least it proved to the nurse who I was. And so she told me he's had a brain injury. He has a brain bleed and they had to, um, drill a hole in his, his skull and put in a tube to relieve the pressure. And so no loud noises, and he, they can only have two people in there at a time. So we were in there and his sister and I and we just you know, held his hand and kind of softly talked to each other and not really talked at all. And then his mom and his uncle got there and we left. We went into the waiting room. And his sister said, "Okay, so now it's your job. You need to get his life insurance, get his insurance in order, like get all the ducks in a row." And I was like, what? He doesn't have life insurance. He doesn't have insurance. She's like, what are you talking about? I just talked to him a couple weeks ago. He's working this great job, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, job? No, he's not working. She's like, what do you mean? He's not working. I just talked to him. It's like, no, he's not working. She's like, oh, he just told me about this, all these benefits. And I was like, he hasn't worked in a long time. And she's like, how long? And I was like, I think since your brother died. And she's like, so who's, who's taking care of him? Who's paying his rent? I said, me. She was, oh my God, you're enabling him. And I was like, enabling him? Really? I've been taking care of him because he was suicidal. She was like, he was never suicidal. I said, you didn't hear him. You didn't see him. He didn't attend his own brother's funeral because he couldn't get off the floor from crying so much. I felt like I was on suicide watch for almost a year because every day he talked about it. I said, but you never checked on him. So how would you know? And she's like, so you're enabling him. You enabled him this whole time. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I was saving his life or so I thought. And then just then his mom and his brother or uncle came out And his mom had the same conversation with me about the insurance, about the no job. And then, oh, you're enabling him? And I'm like, thinking to myself, now I know, yes, I was enabling him. But at the time, that's not how I looked at it. I saw I was helping him. And I think they were they were hurt. So they were trying to hurt me. Looking back, I'm pretty sure that's what was happening, even though I don't condone what they did. And so just then my business partner showed up, thank God. And it was a, a comfort for me, but it really put them back in their place to leave me alone. So as I'm, you know, we now have to leave waiting hour or visiting hours are over trying to process everything that's happened. It's like a whirlwind. It's a blur. Again, the confusion, so much stuff, so many feelings and I'm driving home and, um, I'm getting ready to get off on my exit to go back to my house and pass the church that he had hit, um, which I didn't even know yet. Didn't even know that detail yet, but um past the church that I had been going to. So I was turned off my exit and all of a sudden it like hit me like a, a huge ton of bricks. Like, Oh my God, months ago, Years ago, when I was talking on the phone with him, trying to break up with him, and I heard this voice as if he was, there was a someone sitting next to me on the couch saying, not now, not now. This is what not now meant. Not now meant I had to hand him back to his family. Wow. I thought not now up until then had meant I was just scared to be alone. How was I going to make it on my own? But I didn't know it was for another reason, nor did I even think that it may have been the voice of the Holy Spirit or the voice of God telling me not now, hang on. So um, the next few days, I was just trying to survive. I just felt like looking back, I was like, well, God was carrying me. There were times where I ran red lights. Um, I was just unbelievable because they weren't giving me an information and this mom and the sister were holding back information. Like clearly they always did. I didn't really know what happened. So I was just trying to piece it all together. And on Sunday I found where his car was impounded and I went, took pictures of it and they had to cut him out uh, like a sardine can, like with the jaws of life to get him out. Um, and it looked like the, it, his car was indented in the driver's side door. And so then, um, on Monday I went to the police station to get the police report and not in the police station that I had called, but in a, a different city. So I, I went in there and, and I said, you know, I'm here to pick up this police report, blah, blah, blah. And, and she looked you know, typed on the computer. And she said, well, unfortunately, I can't give it to you. It hasn't been processed yet. And I burst into tears right there in the police station. And and I said, you don't understand. I'm just trying to piece this together and I don't get it. And I don't know what happened. And and they're not giving me any information and blah, blah, blah. And she looks at the, the screen again, the computer again, and she looks back at me and she says, honey, I can tell you what happened because I drove by it at five 30 in the morning. And I was like, Oh my God, of all the people that are behind that desk behind that wall that are working. I get the person who had driven by. Wow. So she tells me that, um, she said, do you know where 35th and Sterling is? I'm like, absolutely. I do. There's a church there that I go to. She goes, Yeah. That church is where he hit a tree. And I said, oh my God, that's my church. Oh my God, that's down the street from my house. This is crazy. So I um, get in my car and I started heading to the church and I started to think about how I feel like the last time that he had really physically had hurt me um he had he had steel two boats on and he was had stomped on pushed me down on the ground and had stomped on my legs and i had you know boot-size prints footprints uh, bruises on my on my legs on my upper thighs and as he was doing that he had uh, place settings like decorated on his table and i was reaching up and grabbing the the plates and i was throwing at him to get him to stop and that was when i decided that you know I couldn't go back and I wasn't going to be spending the night with him. And I was just buying time basically. And so I decided I was going to go back to find a church that was just close to me, just so I could have some comfort and some peace for even if it was just for an hour. And I just happened to choose this one down the street from my house. And I went in there and it was mostly God, probably late 60s, 70, 80, 90 year olds in this church. And I didn't care. I just went, sat in the same place almost every single time. And a few times well, they have had it where I don't know if you've attended church, but they say, you know, you know, say hi to your neighbor, greet your neighbor, or say peace be with you to your neighbor, whatever. And so a few times I've met the the older couple in front of me and the 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 older couple that were sat behind me. And, um, and then at one point I show up and we had name tags and I thought that was really interesting. Well, what happened was the reason we had to have had name tags is because the pastor or the minister of this church was in the army reserves and he was getting deployed. So he got deployed and they brought in an interim one. So they wanted the congregation to be welcoming to the new minister. And so they had name tags. So I was wearing a name tag. And so now I'm actually saying my name to the people that were sitting around me. And, um, or before I would never have probably said my name. I would just said, hi, how are you? And then turned back around, kept to myself, kept isolated, kept processing. I couldn't dare share what was happening. The The shame was too overwhelming. The fear was too overwhelming. The guilt all the things was so much that it was everything I could do to just exist in that moment. So as I'm driving to the church, all of this memories is flooding back to me about why I go to that church and how bizarre that's the church that he hit or that he you know did something to. I don't know yet. And so I pull into a parking lot and off to the side in this particular area of the parking lot, there's like a, a garage, like an outdoor building, like a garage, like a modified garage. And as soon as I pulled up and put park, the door opened to that garage and out walked the man who sat behind me all every single time I went to church and he remembered my name and I could not remember his. And he said, Hey, how are you? Good to see you. What brings you here today? And I said, well, I'm here because my boyfriend hit a tree, I guess, at the, at the in the church parking lot here is what the police report said. And I just came to take pictures, and I'm just trying to piece everything together and figure it all out. And um, he's like, oh, yeah, I know right where it's at. I can take you to it. It was a couple of days ago, so the grass has grown up. But we get there as we've walked to the churchyard, and he points out how from the street probably – 25, 30 feet away is where the entry point was. And he's like, yeah, it looks like he came up over the curb and came sideways uh, across the yard and then hit into this tree. And this tree was, you know, about the size. If you put your arms, you know, your fingertips around something and it was about that size, but it was sturdy. There was nothing wrong with the tree. I had some bark missing, but that was it. It wasn't. It didn't break. It didn't tear. It didn't really do anything. And I said, yeah, I think he came. Uh, I think it would happen kind of almost sideways. I mean, backwards, because he literally was hit into the tree and it was indented into the the driver's side door and they had to cut him out with jaws of life. And so I take pictures of the the yard and take pictures of the tree and he walks me back to my car and he, as he's walking me back, he's like, so make sure you write down your name and number and I'll have the, the new minister call you and I will have, um, write down his name and I'll add you guys to the prayer list. And as I get back in my car, I go to reach in my console for, for a pen that I like to keep in there. And as I'm reaching into the console, I'm hearing the words that pen, that pen, that pen, pick that pen, that pen, that pen, that pen. And so I go down and I pick up that pen. And I'm like, okay, well, that pen was in my back seat last week. And I, for some reason, put it in the front seat. And so I found a, something to, or he had something to write on. And so I took that pen and I write down my name and, and number and then his name and, and um, say what was wrong. And I hand it to him and out the window. And he says, Thank you for this. I'll, I'll get right on that. I'll let the minister know. And I'm going to need to know the name of his insurance agent because we'll have to replace the tree. And I was in complete and utter shock. And I then looked down at my pen in my hand and I said, Here, take this. This is his insurance agent's pen. And don't call me, call him. You're worried about a tree and I'm worried about a life. Oh my God. And I backed up and drove off and I was like disgusted that here I had been going to a church where the person that sat behind me, who remembered my name, who thought he was trying to help was so worried about a tree that I didn't even care about the life that was hanging in the balances at that moment. So, uh, yeah, so that was that. And that was just on Monday and the accident happened on Friday. And, um, at some point, uh, my brother who was working close in the area would come down at, uh, on the weekends and make sure I was eating, make sure I was taking care of myself, making sure I wasn't spending all of my time at work and at the hospital, because that's what I had done. Um, but it, within that first week, a friend of mine had suggested that I go to this Christian counselor years before. And I had, she'd get written down his number for me and I'd kept it in my wallet. And so that first week, I was like, "Oh, I need help." I know the statistics are that someone who's been in an abusive relationship they either go back to that relationship or they go to someone that's very familiar, very similar. And I didn't want to make that same choice. I needed, to, I needed to know why I was with this person, and I needed to heal from it. I needed to to just not. I just needed to make better choices. So I called the the pastor and or he was a Christian counselor and so I called this counselor and we had our first appointment and he said, you know, tell me what happened. And, and I told him and, and I, he said, you know, did he hurt you? And I said, yeah, he did hurt me. And he said, well, how did he hurt you? And so I proceeded to tell him, you know, he had over the years he had choked me and, um, held a gun to my head and things like that and scratched me and called me every name in the book and threatened my life, threatened my family, threatened everything. And he said, you were abused. And I said, abused. And he said, yeah, you were abused. And I said, but I fought back. I, 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 I mean, I wasn't, I, I would, I abused him. And he said, no, no, You did self-defense. You didn't abuse him. You were trying to take your power back. And I was like, what? Take my power back? Abused? It had never occurred to me until that moment that I had been the word abused. I had never said it out loud. I had never thought of myself as a victim. And um, so I had made a, a lunch appointment with my best friend um, right after that counseling appointment because I was going to need it, need to cry to her. And so I met my best friend for lunch or coffee or whatever afterwards. And for, for the next four hours, I proceeded to tell her and she said, you were abused. And I said, yeah, I was abused. She said, why didn't you tell me? I said, I couldn't, I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't let anyone know the shame, the humiliation of letting anyone know what was happening to, in my, in my world. is too much. And she said, this isn't shame. This is about bringing the dark that we go through to light. This is about not allowing the enemy or the devil to win. This isn't about shame. The devil told you it was shame, but this isn't shame. This is freedom. Wow. Powerful, powerful words. That is why it's so important to share our stories That's why it's so important to know that everyone has a story and that everyone has gone through something and that there's a, and there's so much power in sharing our stories. And so as I began my healing journey, I peeled away the layers of the onion that I am with this Christian counselor and started to heal layer by layer. I went a few times a week, the first couple of weeks. And then we decided we would, or I decided kind of talking with him, like I need to break up with his sister. (laughs) I can't break up with him because he's in a coma and his eyes aren't open. And, and then the first week his eyes opened and then they moved him from ICU to a, a lower unit in the hospital. And then I went every other day instead of every day. And then they moved him to a long-term care facility outside of the hospital. And so I went, um, once a week. And so at that point I was spending time with his sister, really sharing what had happened to me, you know, sharing the story about him being abused. And, and she said, you know, he was a compulsive liar. And I said, you know, you're right. He was, however, he's not who told me. Your aunt and uncle told me. And when I said that, and she started to tear up and she said, you know, I hope he doesn't blame me for not stopping her. hope he doesn't blame me for not stopping my mom from abusing him. And he didn't, she didn't, she got it then. And I said, I can't do this. Like I'm breaking up with him. I've been trying to break up with him for years and not now this voice said, not now. And I know I have to hand him back to you. And so you're getting guardianship of him and anything that I can do to fill in the blanks is I I'm here to, for you to do that. But at some point I need to walk away. And so I told her my plan that, you know, after the long-term care facility, she said they would be moving to, to a nursing home. And I said, well, then that is when I, I'm done. I'm not going to go visit. And for some reason, she, they moved him to a a nursing home and she called me and begged me to go. And so I went and I get there and he was watching. um, I get there in his room. It's very tiny, very tiny room. It had two twin beds. One was empty and the other one he was in, and they were perpendicular. So it's literally about the size of Two twin beds is about the size of what the room was. And the TV was on and he was snoring, but he was hooked up to a trachea, tracheotomy, I think is what it's called, a trach machine that was breathing for him, a feeding tube, IVs, all of that. And uh, the TV was on to cops of all things, which was weirdly his favorite show, even though I probably should have called the police on him. I never did. Because again, I thought for sure I'd been arrested. Again, I learned that was another thing that the enemy was trying to get me to not do was to call to get help. It was trying to isolate me, trying to ruin me, trying to destroy me by not reaching out and telling my story or asking for help, asking for support. So I'm just staring at the TV for a while and uh, all of a sudden he stopped snoring and I look over at him and um, at this point he had opened his eyes after the first week and um, his sister had warned me that, or I shouldn't say warned, let me know that he was able to communicate by blinking his eyes. And so I look at him and he's looking dead at me. And if you've ever heard someone say, well, that's, they've been through some sort of brain injury or something like that, that, you know, they, they're, they're alive, but the person that lives in there is gone. And that's what his eyes told me that the person that lived in there was gone. And so he's looking at me in the eyes and, and I said, can you hear me blink your eyes? And he blinks his eyes a whole lot. And I said, do you know who I am? And he just stared at me blankly and I started to tear up and I asked the same questions and I got the same results and I just stared at him for a while. And then I said, goodbye. And I turned and I walked out and I'll never forget. I'm walking through the, the nursing home and I'm, I'm crying and uh, just feeling this very weird place of, he didn't know who I was, he didn't know who I was, huh, he didn't know who I was. And then I open the door to exit the nursing home and the sun is shining and it hits me in the face and it's like, almost like a God wink or a God nudge saying, he doesn't know me, I'm free. And I was extremely overwhelmed with both relief and grief at the same time, because even though that there were horrible, horrible times, the highs were just as high as the lows were just as low. So he was ultimately also my best friend. So of course there was grief in that as well. And um, yeah. And so jump ahead, uh, about two years later, his mom reached out to me and said that, you know, he does remember his life and that he does ask about me and that, um, he recognizes people and that he pushes himself around with a wheelchair. And, um, that was all she really had to say. I don't still know other than maybe she had some guilt why she reached out to me for some reason, but I just didn't really say much to her. So we just got to let it go like that. And then uh, many years later, I was friends with the dad's side of his dad's side of the family. So he had a um, mom that uh, raised him, but his dad, he had a dad's side of the family and the mom's side of the family. Like we all do. Right. Right. But his mom and dad were not together. So his dad was married and had an affair with his mom. His mom had a boyfriend who was married, but she continued to have this boyfriend and she got mad at the boyfriend and she cheated on the boyfriend with his dad. I I need a chart to be able to really explain this because it's so profound, but his dad's side of the family was very affluent uh, well-educated, well-to-do, well-off. And his, um, mom's side of the family was not educated. In fact, when the brother who passed away, um, he was on drugs, unfortunately. And he also has a twin brother who was in and out of drugs as well. And, um, I believe probably an alcoholic as well, just like, um, my ex was. And so, um, Then they weren't as educated and his sister, she had a great job and, and I don't think she had any, um, challenges. We'll put it that way, but, um, definitely completely different types of family. And so I knew everyone on both sides of the family and his, his, um, half brother and sister-in-law lived in Houston and I would go to Houston Um, for work and speaking events and things like that. And so on occasion, when I'd be in the area, I would call them and, and um, I'd either meet them for lunch or, or, um, you know, stay a night with them or something. And this particular visit, I decided I, I stayed a night with him and I hadn't seen his brother in probably 10 plus years at this point, or maybe even longer, 15, maybe. And he's like, well, how is he? And I said, I have no idea. I have no contact with family. I don't Uh, that side of the family. I don't know. I said, but I have been thinking about reaching out and, and uh, to his ex-wife on Facebook. And he goes, ex-wife, he was married. I said, huh? Yeah. He um, was not rational or logical. And um, he had a double life. He was living with me and had married someone else and had two children with her. And he goes, oh my God, it runs in the family. which unfortunately happens, right? I mean, we have generational traumas. We have generational curses that, you know, we experience. And so he was just a product of his environment, unfortunately. And that's why it's really important to understand that our childhood experiences shape our adult decisions. That's why it's so important to heal from our childhood so that we can heal, grow, and then thrive and make better, more informed decisions rather than coming from a place of, of wounded and traumatized from childhood. And so I said to him, I said, you know, I'm thinking about reaching out to her. And if I do, can I connect you guys? He goes, oh, I would love that. Um, that'd be great. So we can kind of stay on top of what's how he's doing. And so um, I get back to where I lived and I told him, I'm like, hey, uh, all right, get back to Kansas City. And I reached out to his ex-wife on Facebook and I said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, although, of course, I probably knew she would. Um, If you ever want to grab coffee sometime, I would love to meet and answer any questions that you may have. And she said, well, to be honest, I forgave you a long time ago when his accident happened, but sure, we can meet for coffee. And I thought in that moment, you forgave me. Why did you forgive me? And I went, Oh, right. You think I'm the other woman when I think you're the other woman. Got it. Okay. Right. And, um, so long story short, we met and I met his daughter. Um, and this time she's in her twenties and and you know, I, I greet them with a hug and sit down with them and tell them immediately how beautiful they are, and proceed to unpack the trauma of our how our lives crossed in that existence of time, and explained about the double life, explained about the, how he was abused. She goes on to say, well, you know, he's a compulsive liar. And I said, it wasn't him that told me it was his aunt and uncle. Do you, you know, aunt, aunt, so-and-so. And she's like, oh my God, you knew them too. And I go, I know everyone. I knew his entire family on his mom's side, his dad's side and his coworkers, which is why I thought we were in a relationship. I get everything now was a lie. And it doesn't even, to this day, it doesn't even seem like it was real. It's like a movie I watched once. Um, But to her, it was very real. And she very much had a husband who was unfaithful. And so we talked through that. And I said, you know, I've done a lot of healing and researching on trauma and the brain and just so many things. And, And if I could be of a resource to you, I know I probably can't coach you or help you in any way, shape or form, but I am connected to all these coaches that might be able to help you. And um, so she, you know, thanked me for that. And, and I said, but really I'm here because I'd like to connect you with the dad side of the family. And again, she was like, you know, the dad side of the family. And I'm like, Oh yes, we're great friends. And so I connected his daughter um, with her uncle and aunt um, on that side of the family. And um, the sister-in-law, ex, my ex-sister-in-law is what we call each other. Months later, she reached out to me and sent me a picture and said that she had went for a visit and how lovely she is and blah, 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 and how they're going to remain in touch. And I'm so glad, I am so glad that they did that. And then about a year or two later, I get a message from her again. This is the my ex-sister-in-law. And she sends me a picture of the twin brother and her husband together at dinner. And I said, is that the twin brother? And she goes, yes. And I said, oh my God, how did that even happen? And so she called me and she said, well, um, the daughter his daughter had uh, reached out and said, Hey, um, we see, I see that, um, my, my dad's twin brother is in Houston as well. And I would like to connect you guys. Would you be open to that? And she was like, absolutely. And so, um, they connected them and she called and she said, you know, this is who I am. And we would like to connect and, and have you meet your half brother they were in their, he was in his fifties. They're both in their fifties. Well, I think the, the other half brother was in his sixties, but they had never met. They had never met until then. And she says that they had dinner for five hours. They sat at the restaurant and, and he cried pretty much the entire time. Now this is my ex-boyfriend's half, uh, twin brother and half-brother meeting for the first time. And she told me that, you know, they she was helping decorate the apartment and, and all the things. And I teared up and I said, well, thank you. Thank you for connecting with him. And she says, girl, thank me. No, thank you. Thank you for connecting us to his daughter. And thank you for connecting us through her to our brother. Why is that important part of the story? Because remember I was on the couch trying to break up with him so many years ago going, I heard this voice saying, not now, not now. And many years later when, when, I'm driving home from the hospital and I had this huge epiphany of not now men. I had had to hand him back to his family. Literally, I handed the family back together because I healed. And none of that would have been possible had I not healed. None of that would have been possible if I didn't let go of the shame, let go of the guilt let go of the humiliation and realizing that I was just a participant in the craziness that was happening for me, not to me, it was happening for me. And so now um, this is what I do. I I help others find their voice, get their voice back. Uh, I wrote a book. My first book is called How to Get Your Voice Back. And it's for that reason is to um, rebuild. You know, when negativity takes us down, it's that starts with that inner negative voice. And a lot of times that's not our voice. It's it might be our parents voice that we picked up or or a bully at school that we've been listening to all these years or, you know, someone else saying things. Saying something mean to us or that bully, and we've held on to it as truth all these years. And so I had to do some major, major work in this world of rewriting my brain, rewriting those tapes that would play over and over again. And again, I know if I can do this, so can you. So uh, now I coach, I am a certified fearless living coach and trainer. I am also an LP coach. I am also a PQ coach, which is um, positive intelligence. It's a mental fitness, so many different things that, and I also do Reiki, which is energy healing. I've done all of this because it helped me and I got trained in it so I could then help others because again, i know that if i can experience all the muck and the yuck that i have been through in 48 years of life and i know that you have a chance to heal and there is a there is a chance for you to grow and there is more than just surviving in this world there is surviving So you can take your trauma and turn it into a treasure because your family might need that treasure or your ex's family might need that treasure or the world just might need to know the lessons that you've learned from the obstacles that you've overcome. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Uh, please feel free to subscribe to YouTube as well. I know I always talk about um, Apple Podcasts, but feel free to subscribe on YouTube. You can find me at Shay Sparks and um, you can watch the video over there. You can go to ShaySparksPodcast.com. You can leave me a message. You can go to my website at ShaySparks.com and you can connect with me on all social media. Or if you know that you want, you are ready to heal. You are ready to grow. You're ready to thrive. I have a coaching link and we can set up a coaching call with you and get you on the path to a better version, uh, to your best version of you. So believe me, if I can do this, so can you. And until next time, let's get fired up.